that in the Bible, that love is the glue that holds uh, together all things good. And in the Gospel of John, we read that the same love that unites the center of the Holy Trinity, agape, is the love that galvanizes the relationship that we have with God and then with each other. We read that in John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, Jesus says, I have also loved you. Abide in this love. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples that you love one another. Love. God's love has the power to unite people into common cause. But then again, so does the force of hate. And, and, and even though at the end of the day it is ultimately destructive, hate can really serve as a very devilish cement to unite people together into a common cause. And there's no better illustration of this than what we find in our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. So I'm going to ask you to turn, if you will, then to the Gospel of Luke as we continue in our study in chapter 20. Because in verse 20, we are introduced to spies sent by a group of people we met at the end of chapter 19. So if you put your finger there at Luke chapter 20, verse 20, look back at Luke 19, verse 47, and you'll see who these people are. Every day, we read in Luke 19, he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the teachers among the people were trying to kill him. And you see this coalition of people here. You have chief priests, teachers of the law, and leaders of the people, and they are all united by one purpose, one factor, kill Jesus. It's that force of hate. Hatred being the the glue that that binds them together. And in in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, you see that their fear of the people and the popular support of Jesus had forced them, really, to go underground with their relationship. But they were determined to find a way to be able to arrest him. Hence, the spies that we find in verse 20. In the Gospel of Mark, we get a better idea of who these spies actually were. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, speaking of this very same episode, the the coalition is sent to Jesus, and it was sent by some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch Jesus, or to Jesus, to catch him in his words. The Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, if you were to catalog all of the groups in existence in that day, you couldn't find two groups who were more opposed to each other in character or in philosophy than these two, the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Given any other condition, they were natural enemies of one another, these Pharisees and these Herodians. The Pharisees, uh, they were the, the conservatives of the day. Religiously, they were fundamentalists. Politically, they were Israel, love it or leave it. Uh, that's who they were. The Herodians, on the other hand, were just the opposite. Religiously, they were Jewish in name only. Everything else about them, their politics, their morality, their culture, was defined by a complete and utter adoration of the Roman Empire, of Rome. And yet here they are acting as partners. Why? The answer is obvious. They shared a hatred for Jesus and a hatred that had galvanized them into a unified force. The Pharisees hated him for theological reasons. Jesus had dissected their agenda, had exposed their fraud, and for that they could never, ever forgive him. 
The Herodians hated him because his movement could in fact jeopardize their convenient arrangements that they had already had set up with Rome. Face it, Jesus is a challenge to all things. We may sing songs about Jesus being gentle, meek, and mild, but the fact is, (laughs) he lays claim to your life, and when he does, things are bound to change. And sometimes that's difficult. You can't hide your secrets from him. You can't negotiate your living arrangements with him. As the old saying goes, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Which may be one of the reasons why some people work so hard at keeping Jesus at an arm's length. I remember one time joining my roommate in seminary with his ministry at Harvard University in Boston. After a campus meeting, we were sharing Christ with, a, with, with, with the, the, this one student who happened to, to come and, and uh, a curious to, to the gospel. He was a nice guy. But he, 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 we found that in talking with him, he just kept throwing out one argument after another, one objection after another, uh, all these theological questions about Jesus. And, and finally, my roommate, Antonio Raniero Diorio, you can't get much more Italian than that. You know, he, a street kid from Cleveland, just and, and a very bold sort of character. And he looked at him and he says, you know what your problem is? You can't set yourself aside. I love that phrase. You can't set yourself aside. The guy goes, what do you mean? He's, and Tony looked at him and said, look, you've raised all these objections, and it seems that we've been able to answer each one, but you keep coming up with more. So let me ask, could it be that the objections you're raising aren't the real issue here? but that you know that if you accept Jesus, there are things in your life that that, that are going to have to change, changes that would, in fact, make you a better person, but you've got some guilty pleasures that you just can't look low. Isn't that the case? You can't set yourself aside. Pretty bold to be able to say that. But to his credit, the student looked at Tony, and then he looked at me, and he said, you know, I know what you're saying is true, and I probably should take it to heart. But it is, in fact, the changes I'm not willing to make quite yet. Jesus is a challenge to each and every one of us. In fact, you find that tucked away right in verse 21. In Luke chapter 20, verse 21, we read, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God. There's a real sense of irony here in this. They do not lie to him when they describe him as a man of integrity. Nobody had been able to sway him or trap him or intimidate him. And for that, they hated him. No matter how sweet or syrupy their words are here, they are determined to get him. And here they launch into their next attack in verse 21. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> now, on your sermon outline, I have it as a dilemma, uh, a, a clever debating strategy, a question that can only be answered in one of two ways, dilemma. Uh, and, and in either way, guaranteed to condemn Jesus. Because if he answered yes, he could be branded a traitor to the Jewish people, a, a collaborator a, 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 with the a, a, a occupying authorities. And, and the people would then turn on him in a second if he did that. After all, paying taxes to Caesar was one of the greatest insults that Jews were forced 
to bear. On the other hand, if he said no, he would be labeled a revolutionary, a rebel, and the Roman authorities would have all they would need then, every right to arrest him and then punish him with cold, hard steel. (laughs) And so they asked the question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? That's the only answer. Answer the question, Jesus. We got you where we want you. On the sermon, on sermon outline, I've made up a word. It's a word that, that, I, dis, that I discovered in Jesus' response. What he re- presents to them is a trilemma to their dilemma. A third way that opened up a whole new perspective on the issue. In fact, a whole new perspective on the issue of life as we will live it. Look at verse 23. He saw through their duplicity, we read, and he said to them, show me a denarius... And whose portrait and inscription are on it? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Does that sound like a familiar phrase to you? Have you heard that said before? How many of you have heard it said, uh, just raise your hand? It's familiar to you. One commentator has called this the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. (laughs) It's a pretty bold statement. And for the moment, it certainly had power. Look at the response in verse 26. They were astonished by the answer and silenced. Now, on the surface, it, has, it does have a, a, a powerful political implications. Boy, say that ten times real fast. Powerful political implications. Jesus simply assumes that we honor political authority. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the way he says it, it is a simple act. There's no complaint. There's no spirit of bitterness embedded in this at all. And it may sound subtle, but it really challenges the spirit of every believer in our attitude. There is a proper role for political authority. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he writes of it in Romans chapter 13 when he says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authority for there is no authority except that which God has established. He goes on then to identify two mandates that define the proper role of government, Paul does. He says, promote the good and punish evil. Those are the two things that government is supposed to do. Promote the good and punish evil. Great political philosophy just embedded in those words. And then Paul ends his teaching in Romans 13 by saying, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Linger on those last two thoughts that Paul presents, respect and honor. In living our civic responsibility, there is no room for bitterness and cynicism in the life of any Christian citizen. It's a tough thing to say, especially when you consider the nature of government. But the one thing that can make a Christian stand out in a society is the absence of malice toward authority, toward the government. Now, it may seem like a small point, but it does need to be made, especially as we see what's happening around us. You see, there's a fine line between fulfilling our obligations and doing it with a foul spirit. Just think, how how do you come across when you pay your taxes? They're not that far away, by the way. 
Our attitude needs to come under God's control and radiate a spirit of honor, whether we agree with policy or not. Now, I know that's a hard thing to do. I can just imagine some, well, what are we supposed to do when there's like a member's bill in Parliament seeking to ban the Bible as hate literature? What are we supposed to do? You want me, want me to respect that? And, and what about Christians who, in so many persecuted lands, facing aggressive, organized, government-sponsored brutality? Are we to honor that as well? Are they to honor that? Those are not easy questions. I, I grant you that. And I won't presume to vi- provide a complete answer on it this morning, other than to state the principle as it stands. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, I realize... You know, in Vancouver, a city of, of immigrants and refugees as well, that, that there may be some here who have lived under persecution, lived out their faith under persecution. In my years of university in the early 70s, I worked behind what was then known as the Iron Curtain before it got rusty. And I worked with Christians, specifically with the church that was facing Powerful persecution, literally paying for their faith with their lives. And what I learned from them was that such obedience was not blind submission. There was a larger principle at work in their lives that that, that would honor the, the words of Jesus here, to Caesar and then to God. And they had a remarkable spirit about them that was touched by grace. And so they, they live this larger principle of obedience but not blind submission because they were following Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. God possessing the highest authority. And what I learned from very simple heroic saints like these was a determination to act with a sensitive, sober conscience that fulfilled Acts chapter 5, verse 28 through 29, where Peter says we must obey God rather than man. Actions that are carried out not with a spirit of rebellious bravado, but with firm simplicity and a determination to be meek and a heart then that was prepared to accept the consequences as well. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And it's that second half that I find to be utterly brilliant. To God, what is God's as our highest obligation? It may not jump off the text here, but what we have here is a bold denial of Caesar's divinity. Something that the world just took for granted. When Jesus makes this contrast, he is identifying that there is only one God who stands above all other earthly authorities, and it is obvious that he is the one who determines our highest offering. Give to God what is God's. Now let me bring this home to the heart. When Jesus considered the role of Caesar, he asked for a coin, and then he asked for the image on that coin to be identified. Whose image is on this coin, he said. Now, just for a moment, work backwards with me from this larger principle and ask the question, where then is the image of God to be found? Were he to ask for that image to be shown? Where is that image of God to be found? What is it that carries the image of God that must, in fact, then be given to him with that same spirit of obedience 
as the coin was to be then given to Caesar? And the answer is really quite simple. It is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, that's every single one of us here in this sanctuary, he created them in his image. So you and I carry the image of God. You and I carry the reflection of our maker. It's not that we are God, but that we are created in God's image. Someone has explained this, and and it's the best explanation I've ever heard, is that we then become something like a mirror. You and I are able to reflect back to God himself, his very image. And into our world, we are able to reflect God into our world. And everything that we are, everything that we are about, reflects the image of God. God created you, male and female. God created you in his image. And Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Make sure that that image reflects clearly. Will this be a hard thing to understand? Do you you need a detailed explanation? The Bible says that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, body, and mind. And love God with all of our strength. We are to give ourselves to God in an act of love as a simple recognition of the fact that he made us, we are his, and what we give to God shapes virtually every aspect of our lives. How you treat others is a matter determined between you and your maker. Your behavior is defined by, 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 by your belief and what you do as a citizen, as an employee, as a student, in your, all of your relationships, every place where you have a responsibility to do the right thing, to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's, you do it because first and foremost, you are giving to God what belongs to God. You belong to God and you are determined to reflect into your world his image in every part of that world. Some time ago, I, I read a story told by Robert Fulgham. He was attending a conference uh, held by the Greek uh, Christian philosopher Alexander Papaderas. One look at him, Fulgham wrote, and you would see the strength and integrity and energy and courage and intelligence and passion and, of, of life. Following Papaderos' speech, he asked if there were any questions well, being a wiseacre, Fulgham described himself, I asked the question, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> the room filled with laughter and people stirred to go, but Papaderos held up his hand and he stilled the room and after looking at me for a long time to discern whether I was serious or not, he said, I will answer your question. Taking his wallet out of his hip pocket, he fished around and a very small, round mirror. I, I, by the way, carry this one I've, since I was a little kid. My dentist one day had a little box with, after the cleaning and said, is there anything you want? And I found this, and I thought, this is cool. So I've carried this little mirror with me. Well, he, well, he took out of his wallet <laughs> a very small, round mirror. And then he said, when I was a small child during the war, 
World War II. He said, I found broken pieces of mirror and I kept this, the largest piece. I, I was fascinated by the fact that it would reflect light into dark places where the sun would never shine. In deep holes and crevasses and dark closets. And it became a game for me to be able to get the light in the most inaccessible place. Have you ever played a, que- a game like that? Maybe with your watch? Maybe in school when you're bored and you want to be able to blind one of your best friends? You know, you just little things like that. You know, send the sun and its light into a dark place where the sun would never shine. And he said, I've kept this little mirror and in idle moments continue the challenge of the game. But as a man, I now understand this is not a child's game. But is in fact a lesson for what I am to do with my life. I am not the light, nor the source of the light, but light is there and it will shine in many dark places if I reflect it. With what I have and what God has made me to be, I can reflect the light into the dark places of this world, into the black places of the hearts of men, and I can change some things and some people. This is what I am about. This is the meaning of life. And then Fulgham writes, he took his small mirror and holding it carefully, he caught the bright rays of daylight streaming through the window and he reflected them onto my face and onto my hands folded on the desk before me. And I knew, Fulgham writes, that's why God made me. Do you know why God made you? From the very beginning, that has been God's intention for each, every one of us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Him being the light so that he might be able to reflect that light off of the image that we carry which raises any number of questions in the minds of those who would take Christ's admonition, give to God what is God's to heart, that we carry his image into our world so that as people look to us, to you, to me, what do they see of him? That I carry his image deep in my heart and as I serve others, asking that question, what do they receive from him? You may not have seen it in the simplicity of the way Jesus put it, giving to Caesar what is Caesar, to God what is God's, but he's laying out two completely different worldviews and philosophies of life. And if we were able to actually personalize that first part, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, we might think to ourselves that our primary purpose of life is to give to ourselves what belongs to us, as opposed to giving to God what belongs to God. And were we to take that question seriously and that admonition seriously, a question like that would then turn our worldview on its head. A few years ago when I had once mentioned that I collected prayers, a friend of mine quickly sent me a copy of the book of (laughs) The Prayer of Jabez. Some of you are familiar with it. It It's a book that was written by Bruce Wilkinson in in the year 2000 with a prayer that was found in 1 Chronicles 4, 9 through 10, where Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil that I might not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. Give to me what belongs to me. And on the surface, that prayer may have seemed innocent enough, but I found the instructions that came in the book a bit troubling. 
It was a word of challenge that Wilkinson gave. He, he, he writes this in the book. I challenge you to make the Jabez prayer for blessing part of the daily fabric of your life. To do that, I encourage you to follow unwavering the plan outlined here for the next 30 days. By the end of that time, you'll be noticing a significant change in your life and the prayer will be on its way to becoming a treasured lifelong habit. Give to me what belongs to me. That book became a bestseller, number one on the New, Test, uh, New York Times nonfiction selling list, selling over 9 million copies. And I suppose what troubled me wasn't the matter of the prayer, but the practice that it inspired. I quickly became aware of many friends who did, in fact, take it to heart and fully expected prosperity to break out all over in the quarters of their life. And I'm, I'm not convinced that the prayer itself carried the promise of affluence or success, but, but for many, that became their aspiration. Which is why then I was attracted to a, a very small and a brief article that was written in Christianity Today by Adam Hamilton, a pastor in Leewood, Texas, or Kansas. As a church planner, he discovered that church leaders needed to be focused not on themselves, and their own personal success, but on the will of God and reflecting his image. And living out the purposes of Jesus Christ, reflecting the image of God into their world. As he wrote in that article, he said, Some have found in the prayer of Jabez a foundation upon which they build their lives. For me, however, and our church family, it is one of John Wesley's prayer that has in fact shaped us, heart and soul, A prayer often called the Wesleyan Covenant when prayed becomes an agreement, a contract, an arrangement that guides us in our commitment every day. While I've added the prayer of Jabez to my list of prayers, the Wesleyan Covenant has become, in fact, for me, one of the guides in my prayer life that leads me toward the essence of what it means for me to be a man of God, to live out the image of God in my world. And it goes this way. I put it in your sermon outline. You have it there before you. I have it up on the screen. It's a daily, I have marked down as daily radiant prayer. It's John Wesley's prayer of covenant. And it goes this way. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt and put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low by thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made to live on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Amen.